Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. Join Tyler and his team as they unlock the secrets to achieving financial independence through wealth building strategies inspired by Robert Kiyosaki and other thought provoking leaders. Learn to build leveraged streams of cash flow that land in your pocket and improve your quality of life. Gain access to cutting edge ideas that will increase your productivity and streamline your success. Find out how to supercharge your retirement plan so you won't have to retire with a pay cut. You can escape the rat race. Are you ready? It's time to learn to earn with Tyler Chef. Welcome to the Cashflow Guys podcast. It's that time again. It's Friday morning. It's bright and early. We are here with another great guest. This time I brought in, guy's a heavy hitter. I got to tell you, I worked with him recently. We were both raising capital on an uh, opportunity up in Alabama. Great guy. I've known Lane for a while. We actually did an interview a while back, but you know, Tyler got done playing with the technical files and it kind of went, got lost. So (laughs) introducing uh, back to the show uh, for a second time, although you folks have only heard him this time, Lane Kawakawa. He is a full-time civil engineer and a real estate investor from my favorite place on earth, Honolulu, Hawaii. Now, he currently has, according to his profile, 11 single-family home uh, portfolio. And here's the best part. He's got over 1,200 multifamily apartments and RV units under management. Lane, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Tyler. Honolulu, man. I got to tell you, when I worked for, I worked for the government for about five years and my, my first duty station was Pearl Harbor. And I absolutely love Honolulu. I just love that. O- Oahu, the entire island. It's just, it's so beautiful out there. You're lucky. Yeah. You know, and I got to admit, you know, still work, go to the day job, but you know, when I walk to the parking lot, Diamond Head's right there and I can see about a third of Waikiki and about a, you know, a third of the island. So yeah, nobody's been, nobody's feeling sorry for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, the only thing I didn't like about Hawaii is I wish your water was a little bit warmer. Being from Florida, I'm used to bath water here. The water here gets like 90 degrees, 80s in the, in the 80s and 90 degrees, and your water's a little cooler there out in the ocean. But otherwise, that place is paradise on earth. So uh, I can see why you live there. Right, right. Definitely is a little more expensive to live here, though. That's the, that's the problem, but it's worth it at some yeah. point. Yeah, it's absolutely worth it. I've actually thought about buying a property out there, maybe a vacation rental or something, just to be able to come out there. Like old Brandon, I guess, at Bigger Pockets, he just bought a place on the Big Island, and uh, he's hanging out in the Big Island over there. So, oh. so um, you you've been doing this a while. You're what? I, it's interesting. You're a civil engineer, which I I find I find it what I find fascinating about that, besides the fact that you're an engineer, is that I meet so many people who are engineers who wind up getting into real estate investing usually pretty early on in their engineering career. Can you kind of shed a little bit of light on that? It seems like every syndicator I know either currently is or used to be an engineer. I think I'm the only one that's not an engineer. I mean, Michael Blank, ex-engineer. <laughs> what is it about engineering that makes everybody come to real estate? Yeah, you know, it's, it's two things. I think the first is the obvious, right? Like, oh, engineers are good with numbers. But, you know, this real estate stuff, it's not that hard, right? Like, it's... Right. it's income as expenses equal profit and let's see if you can do it again and again and again. Um, but I think the second ingredient is probably the biggest thing. And, you know, for a lot of people with kids trying to raise kids, um, 
it's that element of you know financial pain or some kind of you know scarcity of money um you know a lot of engineers we sit there and we kind of toil in our heads at our jobs where it's like geez i'm not gonna be able to buy that bmw or mercedes at some point i'm gonna have to work at this job for the rest of my life and you know i think also engineers you know you can in, at work you can work with people things um you know engineers work with a lot of numbers and things right <laughs> we, yeah. we don't we don't get to like be like a doctor and like you know, heal somebody and see your, the benefits of that firsthand. Right. We always like we, we play with our computers and like you know somebody tells us what to do and usually that somebody isn't very good with people to begin with is another engineer. So it's kind of it's disheartening and you know then you know you don't make that much money. I mean, I work with a lot of doctors and lawyers, those guys, and it's kind of amazing when they kind of find me because I'm like, no, aren't you happy with the salary you're making? You know, right. I mean, right. <laughs> But yeah, the engineers have a big pain point. I can imagine. So there's so many of you in real estate investing, but it's great because it's important. And the thing I, what I like about working with engineers in the real estate space is that you are by default or you're trained to be detail oriented. So, you know, the devil's in the details as they say. And I love the fact that working with engineers, I've got capital partners that are uh, engineers and I've got uh, people like you that I, uh, that I've worked with in the past that, are engineers and you guys are really, really good at the details, which full disclosure, Tyler's not so good at the details. I'm kind of a spaghetti on the wall kind of guy, but uh, always nice to have somebody in the team or in the mix that uh, is good at the details. So I really appreciate having that aboard. Yeah. yeah. My, my friend who was kind of like more of a free spirited guy when he was buying his house and you know, you've got to sign a lot of disclosures and he asked, does anybody read this? <laughs> and then the, the gal said, yeah, he's, engineers read every single page of this exactly <laughs> now I, I when it comes to documents i am that guy i will sit there and read every single sentence and if there's something on there i don't understand i will stop dead in my tracks and i just wear out the title companies they're like really dude come on you've read this <laughs> yeah. the florida contract 20 times do you need to read it again it's like well you know just yeah sure but you know there's something else you could probably you probably appreciate they're like, you know, engineers, they just, they think with their number, with the numbers, they don't get emotional and you're exactly you know, kind of like, okay, this is what you make. This is what expenses there are. Okay, cool. Where do I sign? Right. Like it's kind of maybe a little bit dyslexic or like, you know, it's very, no emotion tied to it. It's like, exactly. all right, Tyler, here we go. Like, <laughs> well, you're very scientific, which is cool. I mean, you, you do like uh, the real estate guys say, do the math and the math will tell you what to do. I think Robert Helm says that. And that's absolutely true. You guys sit down, you do the math, and I'm really the same way. I sit down, I do the math. If the math makes sense and the data that led to the math makes sense and it's from a reputable source, then let's go. Right. You know, right. We, we can not pull triggers all we want. We're never going to get anywhere, but I like the fact that you're out there pulling triggers, making it happen. Speaking of which, you, so you got, you built your portfolio up to 12 houses, which is by itself no small feat because 12 houses, and I've been down that road. I used to be a rehabber. Uh, 12 houses is a lot of work. Uh, and now you make a jump to apartments and you built a healthy portfolio as a syndicator and whatnot. You got a lot of units under management. That's, that's, an, it's an impressive portfolio. Why the change? Why start in single and then switch over? Why not just maybe buy packages, a single family or something? Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of people get to this position where you, you're pretty good at single family homes. I mean, I started with turnkey rentals and I kind of, you know, got good at that. Um, I guess there's not really much to 
to get good at, right? It's turn, freaking turnkey rentals at the end of the day. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's that art. But, you know, do the math, right? Like, you know, you, you spend a month or two to find a property, put on due diligence, go through due diligence, and then, you know, things happen and it falls out, do it all over again, go back into it. And finally, you close on the property all for what? Like, a you know, $300 of cash flow. Right. In the beginning, it was cool, right? You know, rinse, wash, repeat, do that sure. a few times. But then you quickly realize that it's not scalable. So I got to about, you know, 10. And I was having like an eviction or two a year. And then three or four big issues that happened with like a HVAC broke or a plumbing issue. And all for what, you know, 10 times 300 is 3000 know, $3,000 passive a month. Um, which is all right, right? But, you know, that's not enough. I mean, you probably need about 10000 to kind of make an impact on anything. So Correct. that'd be 30 houses. So now you just multiply that number by three. So an eviction every other month and oh. catastrophe every month. It's just not scalable. And then, then I just started joining different masterminds and clubs. And, you know, these guys were all kind of saying the same thing. Like, I wish they would have got out of single family homes sooner. Sooner, right. That's very interesting. Now, so as a lot of folks listen to the show, they they may or may not know what a syndicator does. I don't talk a lot on my show about syndication, but and because I leave that to people that to come on the show, guests yourself, to talk more about syndicates and, and how it works, and so they get a different perspective besides mine. That's why I have uh, folks like yourself on the show that are experts in it. Uh, most of my deals have been single investor to a, a particular asset. So we don't have to get into the syndicates because we're doing essentially smaller deals in, in most cases. Uh, what is it like making that initial jump? It's like, it sounds like, and although we've, we've, we were just working on a deal together, it sounds like on the surface to most lay people, it would sound like a ton of work. It's like, wow, you go from 12 of something to 1200 of something. That's for the lay person. That sounds like a ton of work. So what do you say to that person? It's like, oh man, that's way too big for me. I don't, I couldn't do that. Well, cool. Don't do it then, you know, <laughs> <laughs> more for you. But that, That's the beauty of it, right? Like exactly. when there's this mental block, like anything, um, you know, just like assisted living, right? Like, you know, people get into it and they're like, well, this is like a business, you know? Right. Well, that's exactly the reason why you should do it because people get scared. They're like, well, let me just go back to my single family homes and just do that. Like, you know, the, the profits are kind of when things, when the competition goes away. Right. And in this case, the competition just gets scared. But like in anything else, it's like pretty simple. I mean, you get a lawyer, you, you drop paperwork. The paperwork is pretty expensive. I think that's a deterrent for a lot of people. I mean, you're what kind of talking on the magnitude of 10 grand um, to do a PPM, right? Um, but you know, I mean, not, not a lot of people aggregate capital and to get above that mom and pa investor amount and kind of play in that vicinity of, you know, small enough to fly on the radar of the big institutions, but big enough to, um, you know, definitely get better deals in the mom and pa investor crowd kind of fighting tooth and nail with each other. So in that two to $10 million zone, it's kind of the sweet spot. What I find interesting what you do is your focus is raising money. In other words, you leverage your expertise in analyzing deals. You're really, really good at underwriting deals and analyzing deals. You leverage that into focusing on raising capital. I heard you on, I believe it was Michael Blank's podcast talking about that's really your focus is raising capital, letting 
teaming up with other syndicators that are finding the opportunities and negotiating the deal. And you're, you're coming in as the, as putting your expertise into the underwriting and then stepping in and representing uh, other investors behind you. Is that basically how it works? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, so a couple of years when I was kind of making this shift a few years ago, when I had this mind shift, I need to go bigger. Uh, I joined an apartment mentoring group, uh, you know, cause I wanted to be an operator, right? Like I wanted to go out and lead my own deal. Um, so, you know, I went on all the bus tours, analyzed all these properties, went, you know, probably analyzed like three, 400 of them right. in a matter of six to 18 months. Um, didn't find anything, you know, I was living in Seattle at the time, mm-hmm. you know, to, fi- to find deals, you really got to be like taking brokers out to lunch every other week. I don't know where people are getting in their head that they just can't find a deal. Right. For most of these guys, it's taken like 12 to 18 months to find that first deal that actually makes sense. Absolutely. So I, I was just, and then I started to realize like, I don't like being an opera. I wouldn't want to be an opera. It's hard work to be a yeah. class C multifamily lead. Um, and then I kind of, just kind of saw how much money I had. I mean, I'm, I'm not an accredited investor yet. Um, I'm getting there. And, you know, I just realized that I don't really need to be the lead. I don't need to get paid that, you know, big general partnership split. Right. So I was like, well, I'm just going to be a limited partner because I know how to analyze these deals. And, you know, so I switched more towards, you know, joining clubs and masterminds to get to know people. And that's really a big part of, all this, you know, trying to read the deals is, you know, meeting the people, getting to know them for who they are and, and building your network to encompass, you know, who are the past people in their deals? Can they vet for their previous deal sponsor? Right. How did you, you, one thing I learned from being on calls with you and kind of being a fly in the wall as I'm growing in the learning process is you are absolutely an expert in underwriting. Did you take a course for that? Is that something that just evolved over time. What did that look like? Yeah, I mean that I, I that kind of came out of the uh, the part mentoring group. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of them out there, and you, know, you can. It, it just takes a while. Right. I mean, I, I think you know you hear on podcasts, and you know podcasts are great, but I stopped really listening to them a long time ago because I think I heard it on like, I think I heard it from Grant Cardone. You know, people ask him, well, "What kind of books do you read?" and you know, that character always comes up with the best answers. And he says, I don't read no damn books. I just analyze a lot of properties. And he is right. You know, stop reading, stop listening to podcasts, stop reading books and just, you know, go and analyze 500 deals. Yeah. Because after that, you're going to get a sense of, you know, how to, how to see the numbers, but actually what's out there in the marketplace, which is kind of changing. I mean, things, they, they slowly move to, towards one um, area. What I find interesting is, you're absolutely right, I can't argue with you, is that the, the people do spend a lot of time tied up in the I don't know. And they'll, they'll freeze because of the I don't know, which is, I guess, great because when you're, when you're a syndicator, that's outstanding because that, that's your ideal client, right? <laughs> they're not going to take the action without you because they're, they're terrified to jump into the space. But I like that. Get out there and do. And you're right. I don't feel that the mathematics involved in putting together a real estate deal are rocket science. I mean, it's basic addition subtraction. Uh, multiplication division it's not you know we're talking about advanced math here it really the numbers work or they don't work and if they don't work there's really only two things you can do you can change the price or change the terms uh, but you can't change what's already happened the the, the you can't change where, where the way things are today and i'm a believer and i know in the bigger space you guys do things a little differently in the bigger stuff 
I, I buy or make offers on the small to medium-sized stuff based on what the property does do. In other words, what I don't want to do is reward a seller for doing a lousy job uh, uh, underwriting a pro- or ma- managing a property, rather, when they're doing it and they run it in the ground. I'm not going to pay them as if it was producing 50 grand a month when it's producing 10 grand a month. And I know one thing I think I've heard you say before on, on a couple of podcasts I've listened to, and I absolutely agree with this logic, you probably see too that there's a lot of syndicators out there that are just kind of raising money but not taking a whole lot of responsibility for the quality of the deal. And I know you do spend some, uh, quite a bit of time making sure, vetting who you're working with, number one. Um, but more importantly, really taking another approach, looking at it again. In other words, not taking it at face value. Is that, is that pretty accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the numbers, the way it works out is, you know, if you have a thousand deals, probably only about five, 10, maybe make it to, you know, a, a smart investor will be like, okay, this is good enough to go and syndicate this big deal. Right. Um, so of those, I would say probably one out of five kind of make it through my filtering process. Um, you know, it's something I'm kind of working on is trying to, you know, build my network with more leads. Cause that's what I essentially do these days. I'm the deal hunter hunter. Right. I go out and people who kind of find these deals and put them in their contract and kind of work up the deal. So what I'm looking at is the executive summary put together by the syndication group. Um, but you know, there's really nothing in there that tells you if it's a good deal or not. You know, they don't give you the rent rolls. They don't give you the P and L's. Right. They don't give you the, the rental comps. Um, they give you this garbage about well, what the last thing sold for, but you know, this is all based on NOI. So what the heck does that have to do with anything? And it doesn't. <laughs> and then there's those like fancy, like marketing pages with like, Oh, you know, like, Hey, this is what the state of Georgia is doing in the last like five years. It's like, okay, there's Kentucky fried chicken and Walmart. You know, I mean, it's nice, I guess, but that's useless, right? Like, absolutely. Um, P&Ls and rent rolls, that's a big part of it. And it's not even given to you. Um, and then it's digging into the details. Like, what are the assumptions that were used? You know, was it 2% rent increases? Was it three or was it five? Right. You know, what was the reversion cap rate? You know, that, that kind of stuff can make a 100% in five-year deal go to 150% um, return in five years that's or the other way. That's yeah. A big difference. And as a, as a limited partner, most, most investors investing in, in limited partnerships, uh, especially a lot of the credit guys, I would say a good like 80% don't know how to really analyze the deal. I mean, they, they probably have single family homes themselves and understand the numbers, but sure. it, it, you know, I, I doubt that they've analyzed more than 50 or a hundred of these deals the right way. So I like what you say. It really comes down to getting up there, rolling up your sleeves looking at where the data originated from. In other words, the assumptions, because at the end of the day, all investing is, is to some degree has a, some degree of speculation. In it. That's just reality. Um, I know you see, and I see this as well out there in the space is this, you know, pro forma cap rate. It's like, well, based on completely guessing, we think that it might do <laughs> this. If this happens uh, on a sunny day and it doesn't rain or the clouds don't come over that day, then it might produce this. So looking at that, you're tying back to, okay, what are the assumptions? Like you said, if it's, if they're assuming a 10% annual rent increase, well, that equals an empty building after like year one, right? Because everybody's going to bail out. If you start raising rents that high, that quick, you're going to scare away all your tenants, which frankly, sometimes a, a strategy on purpose. If you need to empty a building, that's one way to do it. But um, when they're looking at more conservative, when you see 
uh, more conservative things like maybe a 2% increase or a 3% increase annually. Is there a sweet spot that you're looking for that makes sense or is it more market driven or what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, traditionally, like, you know, you try and use like a two to 3% rent increase per year on something. Um, but you know, there's, you know, that's just one space in the spreadsheet. There's probably about a dozen things you can kind of play with and, you know, and, and it's kind of messed up because everybody knows what investors want. They want the 80 to 100% return in five years or that's 17 to 20% IRR. So, you know, it's just starting from there and just tweaking the numbers to get that. <laughs> it's call it right or wrong. That's just, that's what everybody else is doing. So you, as a syndicator, you kind of have to do that too. Right. So, so I mean, it, it, you know, it, here, here's a story from the past that, you know, I had two deals out and, you know, one deal was put out at, at this number. And then I had another deal that I was kind of came out after. And, and I felt like that deal was definitely a stronger deal, but we, un, we underwrote it. We did the initial uh, assumptions a little more conservatively. So it wasn't showing as good. And I was like, shoot, like this one's a better deal. Like, right. So, you know, had to play with some cells on the spreadsheet to get what we wanted. <laughs> Tweaking those numbers. Right. And it's not, it's not good, but like, you know, it's, it's frustrating when everybody else is doing it and they're just blowing up the spreadsheet to get God knows what. And it, what it, what it really is, is as a syndicate, you're just kind of kicking the can down the road and you're trying to, you know, you, you just blame it on the economy, you know, if you don't hit your numbers. That's so kind of scary. You, yeah. It's kind of scary and not to deter people from going down that, that way, but just know that this is where the people thing has to come into effect in the track record. Well, absolutely, because I see some deals that are getting. I'm, I'm looking. I focus a lot on on closings in certain markets, and I'm watching to see what's. Not that I'm looking for comparable sales or whatnot, but I'm curious to see the psychology behind a lot of these deals. So I watch them do the the cap raise on it, and I see it close, and I'm and I know what the kind of returns they're offering and what they're projecting things to be. And in a lot of cases, I'm seeing things that there's no way that'll perform like that. It's just not possible unless you know some sort of divine intervention comes in. You just not doesn't make sense yet people will blindly invest in it. Um, the syndicators, like you said, are blowing up the spreadsheet and that's, that's concerning. I'm, I'm concerned for what happens down the road when we have shifts in the economy. How's that going to play out? You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and these guys are super confident about it. They're, I'm like, you guys do, what, like 6% rent increase per year and 95% occupancy? And it's like, <laughs> this is how you guys do it? And... And like the guy is like a lot older. He seems to have a very professional profile picture up. Right. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, that's how we do it. Okie dokie. I'm like, okay, <laughs> interesting. And then I go look him up later. No one has ever heard of the guy. And then come to find out the guy has never done a deal. He doesn't even own, even own single family home. Oh, no. Like, okay. Oh, no, <laughs> That's no, what no. people are teaching these days. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that going on. It seems like lately there's been a, a new boon of, of apartment type uh, trainings out there. I've seen all kind of, everybody's popping up with a, a big apartment, you know, the big commercial apartment uh, boot camps and 50,000 this and a hundred thousand that. So I guess that's going to take a lot of people coming out of it now with wanting to take the shortcuts. Cause even if the educator's really, really good, I know for a fact, cause I I've talked to people, Rod Cleef, a buddy of mine, he's a great guy. He has a great training program, but I know people that have come out of there and they're not listening to him. They're not because I think the psychology behind it is well, I showed up, I bought the book, therefore I, I know enough and I'm just going to run out there half-cocked and not really pay attention to what's in it, so to speak, which is a little scary, but what can you do? 
Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a very fragmented kind of product. I mean, no deal is the like. I mean, people ask like, well, how is this to the last one? It's like, well, you know, it's a different market and just different everything. You know, it's, it's hard. Absolutely. And when you see enough of these things, I think that's the main thing is just start taking pitches on this stuff and just seeing that, you know, they're all a little different. But once you get the hang of it, it's, it's simple. It gets, gets to be second nature. Let's talk about my favorite topic in the world. It's time. You know, you, you work full time and I'm sure you got a little bit of surfing going on if you're in Hawaii, right? You take time out to go surfing, don't you? Well, I, I've only been to the beach a couple of times since I moved back, what, seven, eight months ago. So that's, for me. that's, that's just, <laughs> I probably need to start doing that more. Yeah, yeah you do. I mean, why you're in Hawaii, dude. <laughs> Come on. Jeez. But anyway, but so working full time, syndicating on the side, right? Or which, you make a big impact. I mean, you've got your own podcast that's doing quite well. You've got a, a big following. How do you manage your time? I mean, how do you handle all that? Do you spend a lot of time with the syndicates or do you just rely on the, on the resources of others in the deal or how does that work? Um, I, think, I think I've always just been very good at managing the time that I do have. Um, I, I call it the, you know, you go to work and, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to kind of been able to take easier jobs. You know, I used to work in private and then I worked for the government and I work, still work for the government. So I do my job, I get my work done, but then, you know, there's this other time when I come home because I'm not totally drained. I don't have a commute. Um, but it's just like, what are you going to do when you come home? Like watch Netflix or spend two three hours on doing this other stuff. Right. I think that's like, you know, I do that every day. I like right now I, I come home and I work till like midnight every single night and I work eight hours on this stuff on the weekends on Saturday and Sunday. And it's probably not sustainable and I don't recommend it for everybody, but at some point I'm going to pull the pin on the job and do this full time. But you know, that's, that's how you, you got to start that flywheel. I think in the beginning, I agree. And, and I, I tell a lot of people like, look, you know, you, you're picking up single family homes. You're trying to do your research, you know, just try and put in that two hours every night, you know, just be consistent about it. Well, I think the consistency is the key is if, you know, if you're all over the place, like exercise, right? If you set your mind to exercise three days a week and you exercise three days a week consistently, you will lose weight and feel better. You'll look better the whole nine yards. Same thing with building wealth. You invest in your business in, in time. I like that, that you, you know, right now, yes, you realize that you are working a lot of hours. However, it's, it's not, there's, it's not, that there's no end in sight. It's, it's the, it's a temporary thing to get to a certain place to where you can pull the trigger, uh, exit the, the J-O-B type of thing, and then move on to, to bigger and better things doing your own time. So with that, when you guys, so when you do it, when you're just strictly raising the money on a deal, once it closes, is there much for you to do as you're in your role in most cases from what you've seen, or is that pretty much it just maintaining the, the relationship with the investor until they exit the, the property? What's that look yeah, like? Yeah. I mean, the, the, one of the big things is kind of like the communications and you know, it, it's, I think a lot of people don't do a very good job of like staying up on top of the deal in terms of like, you know, just communicating and being transparent what's happening out there with the deal. Um, you know, I think a lot of it's the selling is sort of on the front end. You get the right. money and, and then, you know, you'd be lucky if you, uh, you know, you hear anything else. But, you know, I, I, we like to do the monthly email update, whether it's, I don't know, I, I don't want to say it's quite 500 words, but it's, and it gives, hey, this is where we are in terms of projections. This is the occupancy. These are how the rents are trending. 
ooh, last last month, um, you know, we got a couple absorbed at like a really high rent, like a $20 more than we thought, you know, and here are the spreadsheet with all the financials and here's what we're projecting out for next distributions in a few months. You know, that's kind of like the, the flavor of kind of what goes into a monthly update and right. you know, the, those monthly updates sneak up on you quick. Yeah, they tend to, right? It's like a podcast episode. It's like, oh, I got to record an episode. <laughs> Sometimes I think, you know, I always tell myself when I give it people, I go to PodFest and a lot of the PodFest conventions, I speak at them and whatnot. When I go there, people always ask me advice. They say, what's your best advice? I always tell them the same thing. Make sure you bucket your episodes, right? Of course, I'm the guy that means well. It's actually on my calendar as a time block. Does it ever happen? No, this episode will probably be aired next week because bucket is bucket is running thin, right? <laughs> it, it just gets like that. You get. Uh, I'm working on a book right now. I'm writing a book, and that's taking a lot of my time. And I got a coaching program going, uh, and that's taking a lot of time. So these things tend to tend to eat up, eat in your way. So I like the fact that that you do keep in contact with the investors on a regular basis. That's that's really good news. Yeah. I mean, as far as the investment goes, I mean, that's why I think this is why it's superior to being your own operator, because you've got somebody on the team who is there all the time. And I'm not talking about like the property manager I mean, the property managers a vendor. They don't care. Right. At the end of the day, that's a $15 an hour person. I don't want a $15 an hour person managing a multi-million dollar asset. I mean, I want somebody who is in the equity team in the general partnership as skin in the game. Right. Who's boots on the ground. I think that's a big thing that I look for because, I mean, that's what, when I was in my group, that's what a lot of people looked for in the first place. You know, they don't care where the deal is. They, the first question is always, who's going to be boots on the ground? Right. Where do they live? Yeah, and, how they, and what's their background? What's their track record? Are they going to be able to do these things? That's all good stuff. I like that. Right, right. And, you know, granted, like, they, they don't really need to have that much experience as long as somebody else in the general partnership does. But as long as I, I think there's a peace of mind in knowing that somebody's there and, you know, that they can kind of report back. I mean, it's not rocket science, this stuff. <laughs> That's true. But, you know, they don't need to be the smartest guy in the group, but they report back to the team and, and they can respond quickly. When you kind of a, an off topic, but on topic question, you and I kind of want to wrap up with this one. This is, I think, a good one. You talk about the reversing the pyramid of traditional investing. Can you touch on that? Yeah, I think, you know, when I was, you know, working at a date when I still do, but like, you know, when when I was kind of young and they kind of tried to brainwash you and they bring the 401k guy in from the uh, the big uh, brokerage house, they come in and they're like, oh, you know, you start out, you got to go with this. uh uh, this something 500 index fund because it's mostly stocks and less bonds because you guys are young, you know, you guys need to go out and take the risks and you got, you got time on your side, you know, all this same stuff they always say, but right. I think it's the complete opposite. I think in the beginning you need to be going after the more stable assets, you know, like the single family home. That's like the fundamental go get that, get it, Get a few of them to start out with. Get that cash flow going so, so you can build the, the cash flow base. You know, get to a thousand or a few thousand dollars a month. Then go after bigger things, more riskier things like developments. The, one of the biggest mistakes I, I see from newbies is they get this shiny object syndrome and they're like, oh, I'm going to flip houses. And I'm like, okay, oh, well, no. there's, no, there's no cash flow on that. You know, yeah, it's bigger or potentially ROI, but you, first of all, you don't even know what you're doing. You don't even have a good network to support you. Right. Um, 
or they'll do things like, oh, I'm going to, you know, do land investing. Yeah, because that's all the rich people do. I'm like, no, no, you, you don't see it. Like what the rich people are doing is they can do that because they're rich. You know, they don't have to worry about putting food on the table. Exactly. So th- this is just my philosophy is like starting out with, instead of appreciation first, starting with cash flow first. And it may not be the quickest way there. You may be buying, you know, junker, class C and B assets out in the Midwest that don't really appreciate. But to start out with the fundamentals there and then kind of invert that pyramid as things go along. So, you know, I would say, you know, that's when you start to add the class C multifamily, class B multifamily syndications. And then maybe go after bigger, um, more high risk, high reward stuff like, um, you know, different, different kinds of mobile home parks, self-storage. I mean, those are also very conservative investments too, but more like developments, you know, that 30% IR, you know, that you might get an 80% return in two and a half year deals. Nice. Some of those more, you know, home run plays. Outstanding. Yeah, I agree with your analogy there. And you're, you're, you got to build that base. And that's why I tell people is, you know, please start with something, get some cash flow going, because then you always have that base. And doesn't it, it makes it so much easier to escape the rat race when you do have that foundational cash flow coming in. I mean, we did some things yeah, with, with yeah. our first property and it, it's provided that core of which we could build our business on it. You know, without it, I, things would be a lot different. I can tell you that. Right, right. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, real estate has been good for the last decade. And, you know, a lot of people have made a lot of money with appreciation, say, in their like San Francisco house. And I'm like, well, good for you, right? Like, but, you know, if you, if you kind of ride that wave at the wrong time, I mean, that can really hurt you. And it's just not, I mean, it's kind of like investing in Bitcoin or things like that are, are kind of like that. It's just like gambling. That it and, is. Uh, I, th- I think also cash flow also kind of changes your mindset a little bit. It makes you more abundance mindset. And I, I don't care if you read books until you get that cash flow coming in every single month, like substantial cash, like a few thousand dollars. I mean, it's not going to change. You're not going to start thinking differently. I mean, you're not going to start thinking about charities or, you know, bigger meanings, kind of creating something bigger until that starts to come in and, and you have to stop worrying about putting food on the table. Exactly. If you can't pay your mortgage, the charity becomes the last thing on your mind. That's for sure. Right. Right. Yeah. Sure. Well, that's the truth, man. Amen <laughs> there. So Lane, what's the best way if somebody wants to talk to you about potentially investing, how do they reach out to you? What's the best way to reach you? Yeah. The best way is, you know, come to my website, simple passive um, check out the podcast too. And then, you know, shoot me an email lane at simple passive Always looking to connect with people and, you know, people who are, Definitely, you know, put, willing to put in the work. Um, yeah, you know, I'll put in time and, you know, kind of hear, hear your situation and t- point you in the right direction. Probably be pretty much the same that you tell them every day. Absolutely. But it, 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 seems, like, it seems like the right way to go. <laughs> it does. It absolutely does. And I got to say, what I love about what we do, aside from the real estate, but being podcasters, is the ability to have an influence on other people's lives in a positive way. I dig that. And a lot of, sometimes people ask me from the show, they write in and go, dude, why do you have your quote unquote competition on the show? It's like, well, first of all, I don't have competition because we live in an abundance mindset. And what I do realize is that people have different personalities. There are some people who's my, they may not gel with my personality. There are some people that may not gel with yours, for example. And by leveraging the art, what we have to offer to both audiences, we can help a greater number of people. It's not about 
what Tyler does or what Lane does or who's better or who's worse or anything like that. We think, ladies and gentlemen, in abundance. And what you will see in, the, in this, that more prevalent, I believe, in the larger assets, uh, the abundance mindset as compared to the single family where it's like, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, right? Right, right. Yeah, and I, and I commend you for that because, you know, not all podcasters are like that. There's definitely some that are kind of just play with themselves and they keep doing single family homes and there's a reason because yeah. nobody wants to work with them. Exactly. <laughs> they're <laughs> challenged. Yeah, they're pain that work with. Nobody likes them. They're like their uh, scarcity mindset. <laughs> and exactly. it, I think at the end of the day, like, you know, I think the best thing about doing this podcasting thing is you meet cool people and you build actually pretty good friends because, I mean, most times I'm in W2 world, I talk about this stuff. They look at me cross-eyed and, oh, yeah. And it's kind of lonely. <laughs> like, like, there's, like, what's wrong with you, dude? You're just weird. Why can't you go out and have a beer with the rest of us? Well, because I'm busy raising money for a multi-million dollar deal that'll pay me for the rest of my life, but never mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll go have the cocktail. Uh, anyway. Anything you want to wrap, say before we wrap up, Lane? Um, no, no. I mean, I'll, I'll have you on. I'll try and tell your side of the story. I think a lot of times you, you don't really get to hear that um, on my podcast. Um, we'll definitely try and dig into your story a little bit but yeah thanks for having me oh always a pleasure i'm sorry that we we lost your your file the first time we had that damaged file but we were able to reconnect that's cool we, we and ladies and gentlemen the story goes so we, we we reunite on a conference call about an investment deal where we're both raising money for it and then it hit me after the call i'm like i forgot about that episode and so i sent him an email after the call going dude forgot forgot about that episode let's get back and get that finished so I appreciate you taking the time to come out of your busy day and add value to my audience. I definitely appreciate that. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to wrap there. I will put Lane's contact information that he gave you down in the show notes so you'll be able to access that. Reach out to him. Get on the phone with him. Schedule some time. Uh, bend his ear a little bit. And you know, if there's something where there can be a mutual value exchange, get to know each other. Build a relationship. Uh, if nothing else, I guarantee you will learn something from Lane. I know I have, and I continue to do so. Uh, with that, folks, we're going to wrap it. As always, if you are not a member of our Facebook group, head on over to cashflowguys.com forward slash group, cashflowguys.com forward slash group. It takes you right over to the Cashflow Guys group on Facebook. We have a lot of folks in there uh, asking good questions, getting good answers. So please feel free to go over there and join. It's absolutely free. And I'm going to leave it right there. I want you to make sure this week you are focused on learning to earn and making sure that you are focused on doing at least one thing to get out of the rat race in your near future. Have a great week. This concludes today's episode. You don't have to wait till the next episode to learn to earn. Head over to cashflowguys.com and contact Tyler and his team for more powerful tips and ideas. So you can start generating multiple streams of income and escape the rat race.